Just a quick note to say sorry this episode has taken a while to come out. The likely disruption from the ongoing industrial dispute in UK higher education means that this podcast series will likely be further delayed. But I hope to finish it as soon as I can. There's information and links about the strike in the description of this episode. Okay, welcome to Only Bands. Let's play. So this is the sound of me playing an online game. Okay, your name is Arwerin. Okay, that was a real name. The game is Only Bands, and it explores the ways in which sex workers navigate the web. Which photo should I post today? Okay, I'm going to post a photo of me naked. Ah, flag. Your photo is too sexy. It's been taken down. And chart some of the issues they face as they seek to make a living on the internet. Okay, I'm going to continue on to my next week. Okay, here we go. All right. This time I'm going to select a less sexy photo. There is one of me in a very nice looking bikini. Your photo got some attention and attracted three new fans. Fantastic. Okay, I've got some fan mail. I'm going to open this. Hey, great. $76 tip. Perfect. It looks at issues of images being removed without explanation, of accounts being banned, and it's all based on the real-life experiences of sex workers. Two of the creators kindly sent me some short voice notes in response to some of my questions. Hi, I'm Maggie Oates. Um, I am the software princess for only bands, that is, that I write the code. So if something's broken, it's my fault, but also, I guess if something's working, it's my fault as well. Um, I mean, only bands, as we've said, is a game about the surveillance and deplatforming of sex workers, and it's needed from so many directions. Um, it's needed because sex workers have extremely limited access to labor protection because People are often working online for good reasons, for convenience reasons, for safety reasons, maybe because of a disability, because many people are already coming from a place of financial precarity and being pushed off platforms at the drop of a hat or because you sneezed wrong or whatever puts them at even greater financial precarity. And you're kind of forced to rely on these platforms in part because of outside financial discrimination. You can't go solo very easily. It's a big hurdle to get a payment processor or a bank account to run your own website, even if you wanted to do that. And on top of that all, the platforms are racist, gendered, transphobic, often target activist sex workers um, in how they enforce their so-called policies. And while there's already a huge, amazing movement against all of this in the sex worker community, I think a game, something like this, is needed because it can help reach uh, new audiences. Lena Chen is an artist, sex worker, and co-creator of OnlyBands. OnlyBands was created in hopes of addressing um, some of these issues and educating people about what's going on um, and also empowering folks who are directly impacted by these policies to imagine better alternatives um, so that the game is not just um, a story about struggles and uh, hardships, but also that it offers um, inspiration and really celebrates the resilience of this beautiful and 
diverse community. In the summer of 2021, probably the world's largest sex work platform, OnlyFans, announced that it would be banning creators from posting sexual content. The platform, which rose to prominence in the pandemic, allows people to monetize the content they produce, gathering payment in exchange for access to pictures, videos, and communication channels. Now, OnlyFans isn't only used by sex workers, but they make up the largest proportion of people who work on the platform. Today, there are around 1.5 million creators on OnlyFans, and many of them are reliant on the platform to enable them to survive, to cover their everyday needs. The decision to ban sexual content was ultimately reversed, and OnlyFans remains the largest and best-known remote sex work platform. But this example serves to highlight the precarious position of sex workers working online. The rug can be pulled from under your feet at any time without any meaningful way for you as a worker to contest or shape decisions as to what kind of content is allowed. I'm Robbie Warren and in the next few episodes of the Fair Work Podcast, we'll be exploring the world of online sex work. In this episode, we start with an interview with a worker on OnlyFans. We'll hear his story of making it on the platform and the realities of making a living online. It was really hard to secure this interview and the stigma attached to sex work means anonymity was a huge concern for the workers I contacted. Therefore, this interview was conducted by messenger chat and read out by an actor. After that, we'll speak to Dr. Helen Rand, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of Greenwich, where we discuss the broader implications surrounding the platformization of online sex work. I hope you enjoy the show. So first question is, can you introduce yourself uh, and in what country are you based and how long have you been doing OnlyFans? Uh, you can call me Johnny. I'm in the United States and my girlfriend and I started doing OnlyFans in the fall of 2021. Uh, but we had done some other online sex sex work stuff through Reddit and Kick prior. But that was selling to people on an individual basis. Uh, and so how long in total have you been doing online sex work, would you say? First gave it a shot in the spring of 2021. Um, and great. And can you tell me a bit about your channel? Like kind of um, what kind of content do you specialize in? Well, when we started it, we didn't really have any specialty. We, when we sold on an individual basis, it was just custom picks or vids doing what they requested. Nothing, nothing crazy, though. That was very time-consuming and not too worth it financially. And then when we began OnlyFans, we mainly promoted it on Reddit. And we just post small clips and pictures. But uh, one day, one of the gifts we posted blew up. And uh, yeah, people loved it. So we, we started doing that more. And... That became our niche. And as soon as we figured that out, we started becoming really successful. And how much would you say that you make off of OnlyFans in a month? Uh, right now we make 8 to 10k a month. Uh, is that between you or is that each? That's between us. Uh, the account is technically hers, so the income is made just on one account in her name. Wow, so, so you're doing pretty well. Uh, how many hours would you say that you spend on the channel? Uh, we actually spend more time promoting on Reddit than OnlyFans. Uh, I have a site that I use that allows me to schedule posts on Reddit and spend about an hour every day scheduling promo posts. On OnlyFans, she responds to messages throughout the day and posting content. So 
it doesn't take too much time. Making the content takes about half an hour every couple or few days. So, and well, I, I do all the video editing afterward, which takes the most time. All in all, I spend about 20 hours a week and she spends maybe five for both Reddit and OnlyFans, that is. So if we say that you spend about 25 hours a week on a page and in a good month you make about 10K, that means your hourly wage is about $100 an hour, if I'm right. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, it sounds about right. I mean, that's a pretty good wage, no? Yeah, it is. And uh, we're thrilled about it. Uh, she worked for 12 bucks an hour for many years before this and had recently started making about $20 an hour. But... Yeah, this income is on a totally different level than anything we've we've ever experienced. And uh, I would add that we did put a lot of time uh, into it at first, though we were only making, well, hardly anything. Yeah. The first month in OnlyFans, we made about 100 bucks. The second, 300 The third, 900 And we easily spent double the time each week putting in the effort and you know, to build it and, and figure things out. Yeah, I bet it's a lot of work to set up and gain enough fans. How many fans would you say that you have now? Yeah, and we would post every day for the first several months. Right now, we don't need to post as much because there's so much content on the page already that isn't really necessary to draw people in. So we're in the position we're in now because we did so much for hardly any money at first. One issue many creators have is that they give up or decrease their effort during those first months because it's hard already not making much. And right now, we fluctuate between 1,100 and 1,200 fans. I'm sure a lot of people don't make it to the point you're at. Do you think your experience is, is like an exceptional case? Or do you think it's like quite normal to have the experience you have? Oh, we're around the top 1%. So I don't think you could call it normal. And obviously, looks play a major role. I believe any creator can be successful. But it's obviously easier for some than others. But making quality content and being persistent is key. Uh, I help a lot of other creators because... I'm so grateful for how it's changed our lives and, and want to help others experience the same. Time and time again, I see creators half giving up after the first month or so. So I believe that my girlfriend's good looks help, but we're only as successful as we are because we still try hard to make quality content and promote heavily and in a smart way every single day. So would it be right in saying that it takes quite a lot of hard work and determination to make it on OnlyFans? Yeah, it definitely does. One misconception is that once you make it bigger, then you can essentially set it and forget it. But 50 to 60% of fans don't renew it each month on average, and that's the case for us as well. So if you don't work at it every day and bring in new fans every day, your income will sink like a rock. It's also about picking the right strategy and being willing to change it. You know, like what price you want to set it at, especially the first month discount, if you want to do pay-per-views. You can't try to make too much too quickly unless you happen to make content that goes viral on Reddit which is difficult. We had a higher price and made decent money, but then altered our strategy to make the first month really cheap and let everybody see the entire catalog without PPV and doubled our weekly income that same week. Yeah, it's interesting how you have to figure out what works for you. Do you feel like the platform helps you maximize your earnings? I mean, what I mean by this is, do you feel like OnlyFans kind of has creators backs? I spent a lot of time on different forums on Reddit for OnlyFans creators to see a lot of complaints about OnlyFans from other creators, from content being removed to pages suspended to fans being refunded large amounts because they disputed it with their bank. 
Personally, we've not had any issues. We've made over $50,000, and OnlyFans has only approved $9 in chargebacks. Any other issues we've had, their support team has been super responsive. I'm not sure if our income makes a difference, though. You know, maybe they're willing to give creators that earn them more money more attention. The 20% they take seems rather large, but we're not going to complain about that because their platforms change our lives. I just want to pick up on that. You said that you've had a few issues and OnlyFans has been really responsive. What kind of issues have you experienced? Most weren't necessarily issues, but just like questions on how to do certain things or navigate the site. One issue uh, was when I had messed something up on the model release form that I had to fill out in order to be in the content, and all of the content was nearly removed. But they were helpful in resolving it and making sure nothing was done until we fixed it, even though they could have removed it. We've had some issues with problem fans, but they never really did anything other than recommend that we block or restrict them. And what kind of issues with fans have you had? Are there any stories that you're happy to share? There are a couple I could share. Uh, there's one fan that paid their subscription and the next day said they wished they had it and wanted a refund. Nearly all our fans express how much they love the page and the content, so it's not like he didn't get what he paid for. Keep in mind, our sub price is like four bucks and... That gives access to tons of uncensored content. We, we censor a face everywhere but OF, so it's not fair to us to let him see all that for free. So, of course, she just said, sorry, but no. He then got very angry and said he'd just download all the content and distribute it then. And this is against OF's terms of service, but of course they can't stop him from doing so. Plus, they're not quick to act, as I'm sure they get many support tickets every day. So our safest option was to block him, and unfortunately if you block a fan, it refunds their subscription price, so he got what he asked for. But it, it just wasn't worth the risk of allowing him to have continued access to the content after the threat. We had another fan recently that purchased a custom video, and then after receiving it, berated her, saying it wasn't good enough, and basically saying it's a scam, implying that he should get his money back. Then he messaged her out the blue again with nearly the same exact message, but this time with a $30 tip and saying she needed to refund the money but could keep the $30 so she could keep like at least half of the money for her efforts. And it made no sense in the context of the conversation at the time, but he admitted it was for another creator. So this guy basically buys customs from creators and then berates and bullies them into giving him the money back. <laughs> so in that case, we just kept the 30 bucks and blocked him. And in both cases, do you feel like OnlyFans were willing to support you? Do you feel like the systems were in place to support creators who were likely in a more vulnerable position than the fans who can remain anonymous, for example? Not really, because in both cases, we had to issue a refund of the subscription price to both fans in order to block them. The second case, he had renewed his at full price, so we had to refund $15. But because he accidentally tipped $30, it didn't bother us as much. But ideally, OnlyFans would take action by suspending their subscription and allowing us to keep the money because of their behavior. We report them, but never hear anything back about the reports, so I'm not sure if they do take action or just don't let us know or what. The only other option is to restrict their account, which we do if somebody is disrespectful, but we don't feel we need to fully get rid of them. This allows them access to your page, but they can't comment or message you, so you don't lose any money. In some cases, though, like, like the ones I mentioned earlier, you don't want them ripping your content or, or flipping out and reporting you for bogus reasons because they could create a mess. So it's best just to block them. I guess it's hard as to a certain degree, like fans are quite easily able to threaten you with that. 
does it sometimes feel quite vulnerable doing online sex work on OnlyFans? I wouldn't say we felt vulnerable, really. We haven't had any serious threats of offline action or anybody knowing who we are or anything, though the possibility is always there. Sex work in general does have an inherent vulnerability to it, but we've gotten past that. Plus, most of our friends and some family know, so we're not being too secretive about it. And that's a huge weight off our shoulders as well. Of course, there are some people we definitely don't want to know still. Yeah, I bet. I wonder, do you feel like OnlyFans could do more to protect creators? I mean, from things like threats and also to protect their anonymity. It's hard for me to say because we don't have much experience with threats and OnlyFans response. If we were to get threats, we would just immediately block and report the person. So there's really no way to even know what OnlyFans' response is. As far as protecting anonymity... You can block users from certain regions and also any user you want preemptively. In the US, for instance, you can block people from any state. Although, if anybody's using a VPN, which many do nowadays, then that wouldn't really work. I'm not really sure what else they could do to further protect anonymity. I didn't know about being able to block people from different areas. Do you know why that is? Well, if you don't want people from your hometown stumbling across your page or something, then you could block the state you live in. For us, that's too big of an area to block, so we don't block any regions. We're just starting a page on Pornhub, too, to see if we can make money that way as well. And we've heard that creators get found by friends and family all the time there because they actually recommend your video to people around you. Because some random video may not be of interest, but if suddenly you see the girl that you went to school with or something, you're going to click on it. So I set up the VPN so that it doesn't know of our region when we log on. And my final question is, how stable does it feel making your living off of OnlyFans? And as a second part, you were working on OnlyFans when they threatened to remove sexual content from the platform. How did that make you feel? What was it like during that period when you thought you were going to lose the platform? The stability is certainly a concern of ours, as our income is completely dependent on the actions of OnlyFans and others being interested in our content. Many people say that our content will get old like a video game. More people will buy the new Grand Theft Auto than the old ones. I think analogies like that are absurd, though, because there are new users every day. There's so many people looking for porn that there's never a shortage of new eyes, and your content will always be new to them. But back to the point. It's certainly not a stable source of income, and we're conscious of that, so we're trying our best to make the most of it so that if and when it does collapse, we find ourselves in a position where it won't devastate us. Right now, we're working on paying off our house, and with the extra money, we're on track to take 12 years off our mortgage. $35,000 in interest and be living mortgage-free in five years. Not having that monthly payment would mean we could afford to lose most of this income and still be in a good place. It's a much bigger concern with my girlfriend. She, she worries about it more than I do. I'm mainly focused on making the most of it while we have it so that we don't look back on this period as having lots of money but nothing to show for it. When they said they were removing sexual content, that was literally like two days after we started our page, so... We were bummed that maybe we missed out on an opportunity, but we were by no means devastated as this was mainly just something we were doing for side cash. At that point, if we made 40 or $50 a day, we considered that amazing. And if that were to happen today, it would be a major blow to us. But again, I'm doing my best to prepare for such a thing should it happen. And what would you say your biggest worry is with your work on OnlyFans? If you had a number one concern, what would you say it is? I guess it would just be the income will dry up. I'm less concerned about it now than at first when we started making more because we didn't know if we were just lucky or if it was a fluke, but 
after half a year of continued success, I can tell that however much effort we put in is somewhat equal to what we get out of it. But of course, so many things could change that. There is a stigma around sex work that makes it difficult for a lot of people to consider. We were kind of scared of getting into it at first, for lack of a better term. Like we talked about earlier, there is some natural vulnerability that comes with it. Plus, opening yourself up to being stigmatized. Many people say, is that really what you want to be known for? And that'll be out there forever, you know? But now that we're into it, we're not ashamed of it one bit. And I find it silly to think that we should be. You know, we, we both have hobbies that give us a sense of fulfillment in our lives. And she makes art, and I make music, and started going to college for political science. And that's something I'm very passionate about. With the income we now have, she no longer needs to work another job, and I work mine very part-time just to have it in case we need it. And we have so much more free time to pursue what we want and what makes us feel fulfilled, and our quality of life has increased substantially. Money can't buy happiness, but it can't buy time so that you can do the things that do bring you happiness. So this has changed our lives, but uh, it's only a small part of our lives. We spend our days doing the things we love together and on our own. And I wish others could experience the same. And that's one reason I try and help other creators as much as I can. Thanks so much to Johnny. Next in the podcast is a conversation I have with Dr. Helen Rand. Now, Helen is a brilliant researcher and has published a fascinating article on sex work platforms in the UK, which I'll include a link to in the description. She's also a great speaker, really warm and articulate, and it was a pleasure to talk to her about a topic that we're both fascinated with. I recorded this interview remotely, and the quality is perhaps a little roomy, but hopefully it's not too distracting. Okay, cool, great. Yeah, so I think, yeah, if we just could kick off, that would be Yeah, fantastic. sure, thank um, you. And just um, uh, as a start, if you could just introduce yourself. Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Helen Brand, and uh, my specialisms, um, my research specialisms intersect with gender, sexuality, um, and work. But I'm particularly interested in how that works in the platform economy and within digital labour. Great, thanks so much. And um, I kind of wanted to start it off by asking about kind of because it feels like within kind of like a lot of the discussions that we have about the platform economy more broadly, sex mm-hmm. work it really rarely gets a mention. And I wonder why do you think that that is? Yeah, I have got some thoughts about this. I mean, historically, sex work has been considered non-work, illegitimate work, taboo work, criminal. Um, And I think this really taking a kind of Marxist feminist approach, but I think we can see that sex is seen as reproductive labour. So when you're selling it out, when you're selling it and making money and it becomes productive, this is then punished by society. And it's something that should be done for free. And I think we see this in a capitalist economy in the in terms of it should just be happening. Why are people being paid for it? And as a result, people are stigmatised, illegitimised, punished, ignored or denied their existence. So I think it's not surprising that we see this continuing with discussions around platform economy. You know, sex work hasn't been included in official labour statistics. Um, but it's quite ironic, isn't it? Because it is included in the GDP measurements. So I find, you know, <laughs> it's interesting how capitalism works. And it's something I want to talk about later on, but there is this kind of acceptance of some form of uh, sexual labour and then other forms are denied and criminalised. So I think we need to be careful of how that works. 
But I think in terms of researchers involved in digital labour, because of this taboo and the stigma, I think there is a nervousness of actively including it. Um, it's perhaps easier, and whether that's conscious or unconscious, but it's just easier to ignore it. And... Um, Unfortunately, I think that is something that we see within digital label research. Yeah, and I feel like it's interesting from our conversation because I think we are both on the same page and that we do believe that sex work kind of is a form of platform work mm -hmm. and can be categorised for this. Mm -hmm. But I guess for someone who hasn't kind of engaged with this sphere before, doesn't know much about it, kind of in what ways does this play out in practice? What kind of, in what sense can we describe certain forms of online sex work as platform work yeah sure that's a really good point to make isn't it well if we consider the platform as a broker between the worker and the customer we can see with sex work that this has been a rising uh, labor process that's taking place so a sex worker advertises their services and a customer buys their services via the platform um but I'm a bit nervous of using the term broker when we're talking about platforms because it sounds slightly more passive than I think they really are. And I think they're very central to the organisation of labour um, in terms of influencing pricing, in terms of the hours people are working, the content that's being produced, what content's being produced and who can access the platform. So I think we do need to be careful of just referring to them as brokers because it certainly sounds a lot more passive than I think it really is. Um, that's a bit of a different side. So there's different forms of sex work that have that are advertised on platforms. So in-person sex work, it's sometimes referred to as escorting, um, where someone would meet up with somebody and um, take part in penetrative sex or oral sex or, you know, physically interact with the other person. Now, this is still brokered through the platform um, and it still happens outside of platform work. Not all online sex work, um, not all sex work takes place on a platform, but increasingly so, um, this is the space where people are selling sex. Um, in that instance, the platforms don't take a percentage. Um, it's illegal, certainly within the UK, to make money from prostitution. It's not illegal to sell sex, but it is illegal to make money from prostitution. So you can't be seen to be the third party making the money. So they can't be seen to be a pimp. I mean, to use crass language there. But what they can make money from is more mediated forms of sex work. So when I say mediated, people will have seen documentaries um, around webcam and it's the one that's most popularly discussed here in the media. But as we've just discussed, Robbie, also um, people selling videos, selling films, selling access to their social media accounts um, or interacting online. Uh, through this way. So whether we could perhaps call it a spectrum of different forms of sexual labour, um, some will be much more, so some webcamming shows will be very um, erotic, very uh, intimate in terms of what people are performing. Others will be much more uh, flirtatious and fun, I guess, to think about it in this kind of spectrum. I don't know how helpful it is to think along those lines, but uh, there are different forms of uh, performances that are taking place. But the key thing with the mediated forms of sex work is that they, the platforms are able to take a percentage of the fee. So generally it's around 30%. Some of the sex workers I spoke to said it went up to 50%, some even up to 60%. So it can be very large, but this isn't new for sex work as well. I should add that generally third parties have taken a percentage of the fee. That happens in strip clubs. Um, it happens with uh, uh, escort agencies. It's happened with brothels. So this isn't something particularly new for sex work. There have been uh, these percentages being taken from the fees. Yeah, and I think just to jump in quickly, yes. I think... Um, one of the things which I've picked up on there is just kind of they take a fee, but then I think, you know, kind of thinking about 
also a lot of what else they do as well. I mean, kind of, it's interesting when you talk about the different typologies of different forms of sex work, and it's mm-hmm. it's immediately relatable to so much else um, within the platform economy. And we think about the characterization of kind of what we at Fair Work would call geographically tethered work, be that Uber or kind of uh, Glover or those kind of more place-based delivery services mm-hmm. or kind of um, cloud work where it's kind of like, all mediated through the platform there's no need for a shared geographic place and i think mm. as well as taking a fee for that what also the platforms do is they exert a huge amount of power and control over the labor process mm-hmm. um and i wonder kind of to what extent is that also the case within uh online sex work yeah that's really interesting isn't it so it's interesting in terms of content of phone calls or webcamming or text messages there are some legal frameworks that sex workers uh, and the platforms adhere to so you may have heard of this uh, extreme pornography act i'm not sure if you come across this but there will be um terms and conditions on all the platforms that will say do not you know do not do asphyxiation do not have sex with animals do not you know there's certain things that are um, stipulated according to the english and welsh law so that already exists so there is some limitations there how that's monitored is another matter um but I guess we can think about it in terms of surveillance in that you might be monitored and so you have this idea that it could be you that could be looked at um I think it's probably up to debate how much that can happen and how it much it doesn't happen. So there are some rules like that. In terms of uh, what happens in person, then that will be down to the individuals. And I would say the platforms aren't involved in organising that in the same way as when you're thinking about an Uber driver that has to be there on a certain time and this kind of thing. What I would say, though, in terms of that is the customer has more power now. I think that's been a quite an interesting shift in terms of this platformization of sex work with the review process. I think it's really interesting how much more a customer can comment. She was lazy. She wasn't good enough or they they weren't good enough or you, you, that becomes very powerful when a customer starts giving negative reviews. And that can happen with in-person and that can happen with mediated forms of sex work as well. Um and obviously, the platform is very much designed with the customer in mind. It's not there to support the workers. And I think one of the worries, I think, around this is we can see how many workers there are on platforms. So the customers can be very confident that they can choose another worker. Well, I didn't like it how you did that. I didn't think you were good enough. You didn't act happy enough. So these are very arbitrary, subjective comments being made, um, which means the customer then can say, well, I'm just going to go to somebody else. And I think that puts the worker in a more negative position as well. Mm, Totally. And it's really really interesting to hear you talk about that because it's so much... Uh, the same kind of things I've heard from other workers where they mm-hmm. feel like they have to fundamentally shape their kind of work, like particularly if you workers on platforms like Upwork or Fiverr, they kind of have to constantly be second guessing this review process mm-hmm. um, and kind of making sure that they kind of are very customer centric for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to move on a little bit and ask kind of like thinking a bit historically. Um, and I wonder if we can kind of try and kind of situate platform set-based sex work kind of within a broader a broader history of the changes that are going on within our economy yeah sure that's a really great question as well uh, i think it's really interesting i like ursula hughes work on this can she says something that i thought really struck me that there's been such an interest in platform work but actually uh women have eight of 
joined in this kind of atypical work for centuries, you know, low paid, on demand, self-employed. Um, and actually people weren't very interested in that. But suddenly now we have a situation where men are doing it and it's like, oh, my God, let's let's fund every research centre we possibly can to find out why this is happening and this awful detriment to working practices. Now, that's not to say I want everybody to have these awful working conditions, but it is interesting that this is something I think women have been engaged in for much longer. And I think sex workers, as particularly as part of this, work has always been on demand. It's always been self-employed. It's always been part-time. And there's often been an intermediary involved. So these things aren't particularly new for women and aren't particularly new for sex workers. And I think that's something that we do need to keep in mind when we're talking about digital labour. Um, go on, sorry, Robbie, go for it. No, no, no. I was going to say, but is there anything new? Is there anything new at all about this then? Um, my, my, I kind of just said about it, but I think the worry is that over the power given to customers here, they seem to have much more knowledge at the um, at their fingertips, for want of a better term. They are able to see, make price comparisons. They're able to choose among, certainly for mediated forms of work, amongst a very large pool of workers. Um, they're able to review, so they have this power there to, to sort of actually really influence the opportunities for the worker in the future. And I think that's a really big change, actually. Um and something I think we're seeing, like you just said, we're seeing this elsewhere, this increase in um, power given to customers. Um, the other thing I would suggest is, um, is the amount of time put into advertising services um, and maintaining a profile and maintaining a profile that's uh, accessible to customers because you can very easily end up very low down on the search outcomes. But very much certainly the platform I closely looked at was adult work and workers are really encouraged to constantly upload new content. But sex workers have always advertised their space. You know, that's not new. They've always had to advertise their work, um, often unpaid time. I mean, sitting in the brothel or working on the street, you know, it's unpaid time. So I don't think that's totally new. But I guess what's particularly new in this circumstance is that it does create traffic to a website. It does take traffic to a platform and the platforms are able to make money out of that traffic and of the data that they're given to the platform too. So I think that's something that's... Uh, that's increasingly a worry for me, I think, in terms of that, how much money the platforms can make out of that traffic that the sex workers are bringing to the platforms. One of the major kind of changes from my perspective, um, of which kind of like uh, I've seen and kind of observed and having spoken to people around me is kind of the rise of OnlyFans as a platform. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is been really important because i think it's the attention it's got and the mainstream media attention it's got um, particularly since the pandemic and kind of um the way in which it's been covered in a lot of outlets kind of i think for me it feels like um it is kind of mainstream sex work to a large extent um and i wanted to kind of ask kind of how do you feel like the idea of sex work is changing in our popular imagination and how kind of involved is the platformerization of sex work? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a, it's a good question, Robbie. I'm, 
cautious of the sort of sexualization trope that comes out from academia. I'm cautious of it. I think sex, sexuality and gender have always been part of work and labour processes, but perhaps they're perhaps more obvious or women are less ashamed to say this is part of my labour, you know, part of my labour and this is what I'm selling. Um... But I would say that this is part of our work and our labour processes. So I don't know if anything particularly new is happening with OnlyFans, but perhaps there is this uh, media attention um, because it's still so titillating to think about people selling sex. But then actually in every workplace I've ever been in, you can see where sexuality is embedded in our interactions, in how we make money, in our customer services. You know, it's it's there in lots of different markets. Um when we were just talking just before we started this podcast, I think there's something that's really interesting in neoliberalism as well, in this kind of what's considered legitimate sexual labour and what's considered illegitimate sexual labour. And I think we see this increasingly, perhaps with only fans, this idea of it's okay to sell your sexuality here as a cultural product and you can make money here. But it's a very fine line that I think people tread in terms of if it's then seen as prostitution or they went too far or they did something that was still morally morally objectable by the perhaps like you say the popular imagination then people are still very much stigmatized and um ostracized and excluded so i think we still need to be very careful of how this is raced and classed and gendered and how certain people are being legitimized and other groups aren't being legitimized here Mm, yeah, totally. And I think one of the things that has happened with OnlyFans is kind of like it has changed our imagination. Well, it's changed our perception of who sex workers are. And I think particularly that has been really pertinent in terms of class. Like we've seen a lot of kind of mainstream adopters of kind of um, of OnlyFans who who kind of challenge our preconceived notions of um, who sex workers are being kind of middle class or upper class in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, but I think your point is really, is really interesting. And I think it's, it's interesting that kind of differentiation between different forms of sex work and how those are treated differently. And particularly thinking about the role of class within those different types of sex work. Yeah. And, I, and something I'd like to draw attention to is certainly in terms of race as well with adult work during the period of time I was doing my PhD, they significantly changed their terms and conditions, making it almost impossible to work on that platform if you didn't have a British passport. So it's so yes, you can make this legitimate money on adult work doing mediated forms of serv- sexual services if you're white. I mean, white British, perhaps you know. There's some. There's more to being just British there, but it, it made it very, very difficult for migrant labourers. Very, very difficult. And I think increasingly we see platforms being central to selling sex. And when you're not selling it on a platform, it increasingly has the potential to be more dangerous, um, more precarious. And so then it's like, well, who is unable to sell sex and, and who is being legitimated here? So you talk in um, one of the papers that you published about mm-hmm. kind of online sex work industry and the, the online sex work industry expanding through kind of a process of disruption um, mm-hmm. and kind of attracting new customers through this process and perhaps people who previously would not have used these services. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could just explain for us a little bit about how this plays out in practice or how you see this playing out in practice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we could relate this back to a broader context of digital labour and what we see is perhaps this rise of 
people using a service much more than what they had done previously, but also not having to be part of the elite to access services. So people use cleaners more, people use taxes more than they did before, get their food delivered. So I think there is a shift in our society in general where we're buying services. And I think sex is no exception here. So I think it's become part of a broader trend that's taking place, perhaps not everywhere, but certainly in urban centres, I would say that's one of the things that are happening. And um, Robbie, you may know more about that more broadly. But there is this increase in ease of access. There is privacy and access. You can do it from your own home. It's more convenient. You don't have to go to certain locations which previously might have been associated with criminality. Um, <clears throat> and I think this makes it all much easier for uh, people to buy into services. So I think it's something we can say that is part of a broader practice of where people are buying services. Historically, how have kind of sex workers used technology over time um, and how can we characterise these changes in any kind of way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's a good question as well. I've said that about all your questions, Robbie, but I do think that's a good question in terms of you can see for when print media became more popular, sex workers advertised in print media. When cars became everyday use, customers could then use cars to find sex workers. So I don't. we can think about this even before the digital age. Yeah, things change, people adapt, create new services, locate themselves differently, advertise themselves differently. This is something that's gone on um, for centuries. But I think in terms of digital technology, we can also there are there is a thesis amongst some researchers that uh, the sex industry fueled technological changes, or certainly fueled a lot of the money into technological changes. I'm not totally convinced by this, but there may be some truth in it providing a revenue stream. Um, but you can see uh, parallels going along in terms of technological development. So, for example, when you think of Sky TV or Pay for TV, immediately came sex channels. I mean, that that was it coincided. You had 24-hour TV, and with that was paying for access to talking to a, a female sex worker. Generally, it was females. Um, similarly, telephone use, we then get the premium rate numbers. And then text messages are developed and there's a premium rate text message to access sex workers. So I think at every there's always been innovation um, and sexual commerce adapts to those innovations, whether it where it, whether it's the primary funder of these these technological adaptions. I'm not so sure, but it certainly it does seem they do coincide very closely together. So. Yeah. And is there anything kind of that we can because obviously there's kind of, you know, been the use of phones kind of primarily as a means by which, well, well you talk about print media and then you mm-hmm. talk about phones as kind mm-hmm. of um, kind of ways in which sex workers have used technology. I, I wonder if there's anything, is there anything that we can say about kind of digital forms of technology, which feels radically different to what came before it? Or is this simply just a, a, a like a continuing trend? Is there anything like really novel and new about the advent of di- digital technologies and the kind of like application of this to the labour process involved within sex work? I mean, in terms of the, it creates a barrier, doesn't it? So if you do it thinking about webcamming, how different is it to stripping? How different is it to peep shows? Um, in terms of what the lay worker is doing, perhaps not particularly, certainly in peep shows, there's still that barrier. Um but I guess it has increased the access. It has in terms of, I think that's the key thing. It's about the geographical space, isn't it? So you can do the work in your own home. You can access it in your own home. And I think prior to that, there was much more 
um, areas that people would go to to find this. And and certainly cities have, you know, developed along, a long line of this sexual commerce, haven't they? And we see that changing very dramatically. You think of Soho in London, it's becoming increasingly coffee shops and flats, isn't it? I mean, it's changed significantly as sex work tends to be more uh, taking place within the home. So I think that's really interesting. Um I just, my mind just went there as well, just thinking about it being very a feminised form of work and how, how how it's doubled back into the home, which I think is really interesting. Sorry, just that, just my mind just went to that actually. How, you know, this this form of work did take place outside the home. It was part of it being it wasn't a space for women and part of that being why it was seen as problematic and now it's reverted perhaps some of it's come back into the home again and now there is a you know we it isn't criminalized it isn't uh policed in quite the same way as other forms of sex work that takes place out of the home so we see with stripping increasingly uh, local authorities not wanting to give licenses to strip clubs huge crackdown on street prostitution which we know street sex work um for now for 20 30 years that's been going on but interestingly when it's in the home perhaps it's not uh policed in quite the same way or to the quite the same level mm, and i think it'd be really interesting to hear your opinion on how you feel that the pandemic has been kind of like implicated within that process mm. thinking of the kind of way in which it's normalized homeworking and also kind of necessitated homeworking um how do you feel that the kind of recent years and the kind of social transformations that we've kind of experienced around work have have played out within sex work online sex work specifically um it since um the pandemic i did do some data scraping with adult work and there was a huge uh, spike in people signing up and I think it would be an really interesting research project and a needed research project to see how that therefore impacts workers' um, daily experiences of being a sex worker online. I think there is a, in the literature, there is this concern, isn't there, that there's a race to the bottom. The more workers we have, the more there's going to be a race to the bottom in terms of wages, in terms of um, conditions as well. Um I think the argument's probably a bit more complicated than that's made out to be than the race at the bottom, but potentially it would be good to see how that does pan out um, and how many people are still um, turning to online sex work. But I, my guess is it will continue to grow because we see such reduction in welfare state. And, we, you know, precarity we know impacts women in a way, that, in a very specific way. You know, reduction in childcare, reduction in pensions all of these things have very specific uh, impacts on women so i think we will see an increase in women looking for ways to make money online where they can fit it around other commitments that they may have um i don't see that waning at all you know amazing thank you so much um that's all the questions that i want to ask that's mm -hmm. fantastic i wondered just to open the floor to you is there anything else that you feel that you wanted to add at this stage I think what's concerning, isn't it, in our current climate is this increased precarity for all workers, actually. And I think this has always been the case for sex work. But unfortunately, what sex work activists have campaigned for was workers' rights. And what seems to have actually happened is that other form of work has just joined the precarity of sex work. So what's it's a very sad situation we've got ourselves into where once it was seen as oh, come on, let's get sex workers' rights and encourage them to have workers' rights. Actually, it seems that other forms of work have just um, 
got worse and we see increasingly on-demand, self-employed, um, unclear labour relations, unclear relationships with managers. Um, this being the case not just within the sex work industries. Thanks so much to Maggie Oates, Lena Chen, Johnny and Helen Rand for all taking the time to talk to me for this episode. An extra special thanks to Tom Gould, who was the voice actor who voiced Johnny in this episode. Thank you so much, Tom. At Fair Work, we believe that all work can and should be characterised by fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management and fair representation. Platforms ultimately have the power to improve standards and the ability to choose to. Many platforms operate in numerous countries around the world. Most every country, every city and every worker is unique. Many of the experiences and issues experienced by workers are international. In addition, platforms often operate in multiple countries around the world and the practices they employ have huge impacts on the lives of gig workers around the world. Platforms can take a proactive approach to ensure that the work they provide is fair and decent. We are actively campaigning to improve the working conditions for gig workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work. This episode was written and produced by Robbie Warren. Our music was composed by Louis Bollet. All good? Yeah, that was banging. Yeah, baby.